If you've ever had trouble with a pestilence like skunks and mice and those kind of things around your house, you will appreciate the time that a woman called the police station to report that a skunk had taken up residence in the cellar under her house. They told her to make a trail with breadcrumbs from the basement to the yard and then wait for the skunk to follow it out of the basement and then quickly close the door. A little while later, the anxious woman called the police station back and she said, Well, I followed your directions to the letter. I got some breadcrumbs. I carefully spaced them out from the door out into the yard so that they could be followed. And now I have two skunks in my basement. <laughs> every one of us faces decisions every day, some small, some large, some potentially life-changing, but the last thing we want is more skunks when we follow directions. The instructions were clearly communicated to the woman, and, they, and she followed them to the letter, but somewhere along the line, things were flawed. Several years ago, I saw a story on 2020 that tried to explain the difference between the psyches of men and women. We think differently, we're wired differently, and both men and women are shaking your heads right now. And unbeknownst to a married couple in an automobile, the producers of 2020 put a hidden camera and microphone behind their heads in their car, uh, right there, and they were given directions to a specific location where they thought they were going to have an interview with, with 2020. The problem was that the directions that were given to them were purposely flawed. The directions were close enough to make it plausible and to even cross the right path once in a while, but impossible to get to the correct destination. You know the story. If you are like me, you have lived the story. The husband absolutely refused to stop and ask for directions. And the couple stopped the car several times. They argued over the directions. The wife repeatedly said, just ask somebody. No, no, I think I can do it. We can do this thing. Someone has said if this had been the case, the people of Israel would not have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years if the men would have just rolled down the window and asked for directions. And all the women are laughing and none of the guys are. <laughs> We're different. You know, Jan and I have joked about this. When we lived in Kansas City, no matter where we were in that large city, when we get, got lost, we turned around in the driveway of the same White House over and over and over again. We've been here before. We've gone here. Yeah. The guidance that we receive, the directions that we follow in life, they can seem to be flawless, yet they, sometimes they don't seem to lead us to the right place. Oftentimes, the directions themselves are flawed. Many times we fail to follow the directions correctly or insist that we know better. We set goals for our lives. We figure out how we can achieve those. We send them up to God for his okie-dokie, his stamp of approval. And then we wonder why it's not going the way we thought it should or the way we wanted it to go. This morning in coming to understand what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, what it means to be a Spirit-led church, we're going to turn to the directions themselves to look at why we can trust them. Very simply, why we can trust God's word, why we can trust the Bible, why we can completely and fully put our trust in what has been written. 
We're going to look into God's Word and see why God's Word, the Bible, is a trustworthy and infallible source for guidance, direction, for knowing God's will, for actually hearing His voice. When we make decisions, when we seek God's will and His direction, how can we know that we're not relying on some kind of flawed information? Or that we are interpreting, how can we know that we're interpreting the information correctly? And how can we know if we are properly following the leading of God's Holy Spirit? So please turn for a moment to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, the 42nd verse, page 1340 if you're using the Bible in the racks. And when you find Acts chapter 2 at the, the 42nd verse, put your finger in there. For, for a moment, because we'll come back to it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, as you know, the Holy Spirit filled the disciples of Jesus Christ at Pentecost. Peter preached the first gospel sermon, and about 3,000 souls were saved. Within minutes of the birth of the church at Pentecost, it went from 120 believers to over 3,000. Now imagine that just for a second, now there are 3,000 born-again, newborn babes in Christ. That's a full nursery <laughs> for this church, spiritually. 3,000 new believers who, unlike the 120, the 120 had experienced Christ when he walked with them and he taught them. They'd been taught by Jesus. They prayed, then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They'd been brought to faith as he walked among them. But here's 3,000, or about 3,000, who really don't know very much about Jesus, other than what Peter had just told them. And then by faith, they had repented, they had been baptized, they received the forgiveness of their sins, and they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But now, even with the Holy Spirit indwelling them, these babes in Christ need nurture. They don't know what it means to follow Jesus. What does that mean? They don't know how the Holy Spirit leads. They don't know how the Holy Spirit fills them and empowers them. How the Holy Spirit gives them spiritual gifts for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. They know nothing about the Christian life. They don't even call it the Christian life yet at this point. They're followers of the way. They need training. They need care. They need teaching. They need to be discipled. They need to know how to apprentice themselves to Jesus Christ for a lifetime. They need to be taught how to make disciples themselves. They need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to learn how to discern and know and listen to the voice of God and not listen to the cacophony of all the false voices that are going to cry out for their attention. They need to know how to put on the full armor of God. And I could go on and on of what it means to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be more and more conformed to his image, become more and more like Christ. As we called it about this time last year, how to live the beautiful Christian life. And to do all these things and become the people that God intends them to be and do what God wants them to do, they must be devoted to certain things. And we see those certain things in Acts chapter 2. If you kept your finger there, verse 42 of the second chapter of the book of Acts, we, we see what they devoted themselves to. These are the essential purposes of the church if they are going to get to where God wants them to be. 
These, in other words, you know, what directions are they going to follow and what voices are they going to listen to? And verse 42 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Our focus this morning as it pertains to being led by the Holy Spirit of God is what, we're, what is called here the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. A commitment to the apostolic teaching is foundational to the growth and spiritual health of every church. The teaching of the apostles is also foundational to the growth and spiritual health of every Christian. Without the teaching of the apostles, nothing else will go right in a church. Without the teaching of the apostles, without your devotion to the teaching of the apostles, really nothing's going to go right in your Christian life for that matter. Everything else that is mentioned in chapter 2, prayer, worship, fellowship, evangelism, service, every aspect of our body life together as a church is fully dependent upon our devotion to the apostles' teaching. So what is the apostles' teaching? Simply taught, that are said, is it's what they taught. Now, <laughs> the apostles' teaching is what they taught. Well, we don't have the advantage of an apostle standing before us and teaching us or sitting down among us and listening to what they taught. But we do have an advantage of studying what they have written and studying what they have said, namely the New Testament. Being a spirit-filled, being a spirit-led church begins with being a learning church. A church that studies God's word, a church that teaches God's word, a church that proclaims God's word, a church that grounds its experiences in God's word and tests its experiences by God's word. The apostles were men specifically chosen by Jesus Christ. He went up on the mountain, he prayed all night, and when he came down, he called them, his disciples to him, and he chose 12. And he chose these 12 called apostles, which means sent out ones. And he chose them also that they might teach about and they might authentically record the events and the meanings of his ministry. Jesus promised them in the upper room the night before he went to the cross. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. For the apostles, this was a promise of what we call divine inspiration. Divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit supernaturally guided and granted the apostles to have an inerrant understanding an understanding of who Jesus is and what he did that's without error of Jesus' person, his work, his teaching, who he is and, and what he did. And the apostles and their close associates like Luke and Mark, who weren't one of the twelve, recorded the divinely inspired truth in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament. The Apostle Peter described this process in what we read, what we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, if you'd like to turn back there again. Peter's second letter, in the first chapter, beginning at verse 19. And Peter, first of all, in verses 19, 20, and 21, tells the readers and tells us that we should pay attention. We should pay attention to the Word of God. 
Listen up. Pay attention. And then he tells us how the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. First, he tells them to pay attention. Verse 19. He says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In a very descriptive way, Peter is teaching or reminding his readers the same thing that the Old Testament teaches. Remember Psalm 19, 119, verse 105? You'll recognize it when I say it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God that we have today, the prophetic word, which refers to all of the things, the prophets. Sometimes when we say prophecy, people only think of predictive end time stuff. And that was very little, a very little percentage of what the prophetic word is. The word prophet or to prophesy literally means to shine forth, to speak forth. The prophetic word is the shining forth or the speaking forth of the word of God. That is the prophetic word. And this shining forth, that's, it's really neat that that's what the basis of the word means is because it's like a, a lamp that shines on the path as we walk through life. This last week, I had to finish up watering the yard one evening way after dark. I think it was Wednesday evening. And as I was going out to move the sprinklers, I put my trusty flashlight in my mouth. You know, these LED flashlights are kind of nice. They're small enough. You put them in your mouth. You know, and, and I would put the fly, light on where I wanted to go, and I'd pick up the sprinkler, and, and I'd hold it so it wouldn't spray all over me, but it leaks at the end of the hose, so my shoes get wet anyway. But anyway, <laughs> I was moving the sprinkler around in the dark yard, and then I would set the sprinkler down and adjust it exactly where I wanted it, and I would shine the flashlight down like the edge of the house to the edge of the sidewalk. So as it comes around, it would stop in just the right place and, and go back and forth. And as I was shining the light on the, the water coming out, the droplets of water would sparkle in the light uh, against the darkness. And I go, wow, that's really cool. I, most of it had to do with my astigmatism and the need for, for, for cataract surgery. <laughs> but, but it's just like Christmas, except it's all, it's all white lights shining out there. And whenever I'd go into the backyard where the dog goes, you know, I would pay very close attention with my light to where I was walking. Peter says that we do well to pay attention as we walk through this life. Pay attention as to the lamp of God's word shining in a dark place. Then he adds... Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. The morning star. The morning star refers to one of the loveliest titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus speaks to the churches in the book of Revelation, he says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. Peter speaks using the analogy of the rising of a morning star, in this case the sun in our hearts when the day dawns. In other words, our hearts will be illumined. The word of God, as brilliant as it is, as necessary it is to light our lives, our path in this present darkness, is like a flashlight compared to the breaking of the dawn when the sun burst on the horizon. 
Yet when the word of God is embraced by those who are children of darkness by nature, it is because the Holy Spirit penetrates the heart and that darkness is illumined. Their hearts and their minds are illumined and they're given eyes to see. And even after we come to Jesus Christ, Paul prayed for the Ephesians, I pray that the heart, that your hearts may be enlightened, illumined so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance to the saints. When by the Holy Spirit, and, we are given, and when we are given spiritual eyes to see and our hearts are enlightened, we go, how could I have ever missed it before? It's like the dawn burst upon the horizon. We talk about a light bulb going off in our head when we have a great idea. That light bulb ain't anything compared to the illumination and the sunburst of the Son of God in our hearts when he enlightens our hearts to who he is. When we get a clear understanding of the nature of Jesus, it happens because the Holy Spirit brings light to our hearts. But it does not happen naturally. That is called illumination. Now we're going to have much more to say about illumination over the next couple of Sundays but now we need to return to what is called inspiration. Inspiration. How did the Holy Spirit, how did the Holy Spirit inspire the word of God as he was working with these men who wrote our Bible? In verse 20 of Peter's second letter, he continues his emphasis on the importance of Scripture by showing us that we must approach the lamp of God, as it were, with complete confidence, and that we can approach it with complete confidence because it is inspired by God himself. Verse 20, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but, God, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So first of all, Peter says, we are to know that no matter of interpretation, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now there are two aspects to this about interpretation given by Peter and the first has to do with false prophets, false prophets in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah warned and he said, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into fertility they speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. The mark of a false prophet was that he speaks something that he had thought of himself and that he was not saying what God had told him to say. In fact, God had not spoken to him at all. And Ezekiel says, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have, not, and have seen nothing. Instead of being inspired by the Holy Spirit, instead of the word coming from God through the Holy Spirit, it's coming out of their own spirit. And he says they have seen nothing. They have not been in the presence of God and said what they have seen there. They haven't seen anything. They haven't heard anything. They, all, they made it all up. But when the true prophet of God speaks, it was no private opinion. It was no intelligent guess. It was no human forecast about how things are going to go. It was a revelation from God, and therefore their words must be carefully heeded. 
Secondly, Peter's warning about one's own interpretation pertains to the interpretation or the interpreting the prophets. That is, our own interpretation of Scripture. He says it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, I need to say here, because we can get a misunderstanding, one of the great things that came out of the Reformation of the church at the end of the Dark Ages, interesting they'd call it that, was a return to the Word of God, a return to the Bible, not only in faith and practice, but in the ability and the responsibility of every Christian to read, to study the Bible for themselves. For the first time in the Reformation, at the time of the Reformation, for over a thousand years, the Bible for the first time after a thousand years became available in the languages of the people. Up to that time, it had all been in Latin. Worship was all in Latin. Everything was in Latin. People couldn't read. They couldn't read Latin. They couldn't read it in their own language if they, they could read. And even many of the priests and the clerics were illiterate. They were just repeating what they had heard, not from somebody else. They couldn't read it. And so the first time out of the Reformation, people came to the Word of God in the Greek and the Hebrew text and said, we've got to get this into the language that people can read. And William Tyndale was one of the first men to translate the scriptures into English. And he said to one of these clerics one time who, who said that, uh, well, the, the, it needs to remain in, in Latin. And uh, Tyndale said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow that he shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. <laughs> and that was his goal. Eventually, William Tyndale did give his life for translating the Bible into English. And the words echoed the famous inscription of Erasmus in, <coughs> excuse me, in the preface to his Greek New Testament, which was published in 1514. He, put, he compiled the New Testament into the Greek using what manuscripts were available, and his goal was that now scholars in all different languages can, can translate it into English, and of course his, his uh, Greek New Testament was the basis for the King James Version. And Erasmus said in the preface to his Greek New Testament, I would to God that the plowman would sing a text of the scriptures at his plow, and that the weaver would hum them to the tune of his shuttle that when we're going about our daily lives, our daily work, that scripture would be on our lips and on our hearts in English as we, because it pertains to us. So when Peter speaks of one's own interpretation, he's not speaking about the Holy, how the Holy Spirit illumines our hearts and guides us in our own study and understanding of God's word. So we need to look at the context of it here. At the end of chapter 1 is chapter 2, Right? Okay, First Peter. Makes sense. Well, when the New Testament was written, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions and those kind of things because the thought continues into chapter 2 when you see that word, but. It's called an adversity, referring to how it's adverse to what was right there before. You see, a, a situation was confronting Peter and the people he was writing to in which heretics and evil men, false prophets in Peter's day, were interpreting the, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, to fit their own views and their own desires. 
And so at verse 21, he says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people. And we've seen that in the Old Testament. Just as there will also be false prophets among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgments from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter is saying that no man or woman can go to the scriptures and interpret it any way they want to, according to their own private views, according to their own opinions, according to their own evil agenda oftentimes. He or she cannot interpret the scriptures to suit themselves or how it suits their greed, their sensuality. Don't listen to these guys. They introduce destructive heresies. Peter is concerned about the source of scripture where it came from, so that we can have complete and absolute trust in it. And he says, the first thing you need to know if you're going to trust the lamp that lights the dark place is that no prophecy of Scripture is what this is the Scripture, not other Scriptures, no prophecy of Scripture in the Bible came from a human source. It's not like the teaching of the false prophets. No prophecy of Scripture originated in the prophet's own understanding. So Peter points to the divine source of Scripture in verse 21 of the second, uh, of first, second, second Peter chapter 1. He says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Peter is saying that prophecy, that the declaration of the Word of God, the shining forth of God's Word, did not arise because a human or somebody got some kind of insight or, or understanding of something and then decided to, to write it down. He immediately says, for prophecy never came by the will of man. He uses the most forceful words possible for not ever that ever appear in the Bible. It's the idea, not any time ever did this happen. So it's never in the absolute sense. Never, ever did it come out of the will of man. But Peter says, men moved of God. Men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of people have a religious experience or they say, oh, wow, that, that's got to be true because it happened to me or I was given some insight into this. And they, they have a religious experience. It could be a moving experience and they, they write it down. They had some form of ecstasy, ecstasy that went along with it. Their emotions were moved. They said they really felt the presence of God. And, and so they gave voice to that emotion and declared what they believed to be the things of God. Peter is saying here, it's, it's, it's not the idea that men were moved and motivated to speak their stuff just because they had a religious experience, a moving that they believed was, was of God, and so they wrote it down and declare it. Peter means here, no, never, that's never the way it worked. He's talking about the content, what the words were, the very content of the words did not arise by human will at all, never, nana, not ever, 
The origin and the authority of the word of God are found in God alone, through his spirit. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God. Or as it might say in one of your translations, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, if we don't understand that word inspired, we can get the wrong impression. Beethoven was inspired. Brought us beautiful music, inspirational music, as was Shakespeare. And the, an artist can get inspired or to do a great masterpiece. To, I knew a guy one time that said, well, I get inspired once in a while, then I sit down until it goes away. <laughs> we tend to think of inspiration as that moving or motivating factor, that internal or external source that moves a person to do something. In an earthly sense, that is inspiration. We can be inspired or motivated to do all kinds of things and, and all kinds of people. But as we know here, the word translated inspired literally in the Greek language is God-breathed. Theoponostos. It comes from two Greek words. Theos, we know that to be God. And paneo, which means to blow. To blow. It's related to the word panuma, which we normally translate spirit. Panuma means wind or spirit. Panuma is the blowing. Paneo means to, to blow. The Holy Spirit is the paneo. He is the one who, who blows. In fact, at, at Pentecost, we don't need to turn to it again, but it says there was a sound of a violent rushing wind, a paneo, a blowing, a loud noise, and the Holy Spirit, the panuma, filled the disciples. The other word is, that comprises God breathe, of course, is theos. Theos. Theopanostos. God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Scripture was breathed out by the Spirit of God. Now here in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter uses another metaphor, but it's very closely related and explains how if scripture is breathed out by God, all of his will, not of man's will, ever, never, what part then do men who wrote scripture play in divine inspiration? It has to do with the word translated moved. Men moved by the Holy Spirit, or your translation that you're using might say, men born along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the phrase shows us that wonderful cooperation, as it were, between man and God. There is, there's a divine component. It all comes from God, but there's also this human component. What is it? We know that men declared it. They taught it. The apostles wrote it down. They taught it. How does it all work together? In the ancient Greek language, the words translated moved or born along goes back to the language of the sea. The language of the sea. It was used to the movement of a ship across the waters. Picture a ship moving across the waters as it sometimes glides across. In ancient days, what made the ship move? The wind, the panuma, that which is blowing. Without wind, a sailing ship gets stranded. It's unable to go anywhere. The motion of a sailing ship is not found in the inherent power of the ship itself. The ship wouldn't go if it wasn't from the wind, the external source. 
Rather, it moves when its sails are filled with something external to the ship. The blowing wind captured by the sails, and the ship sails... Is that wind? Hail. <laughs> There's probably something that has to do with this going on right here, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is. But it moves across... So when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, we speak of the superintendence of scriptures by the Holy Spirit who moved the sails. God did not write this book with his own finger. He wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. That's pretty good size. That's about dime size or something like that. In fact, scripture was written by at least 40 men over the course of hundreds of years. Written by men when their sails were hoisted, as it were. Their sails were filled with the breath of God who moved them to write exactly what he wanted to say. All the books in the Bible were written by human beings. But these human beings were moved and protected by the revealing authority of the Spirit of God. In his word and by his Spirit, God says exactly what he wants to say word for word, using the instrumentality and the personality and the temperament of the one he is moving. So when the Holy Spirit superintended and moved the human writers, he didn't annihilate their humanity. In other words, they didn't become just like robots pressing keys that God said to computer keys to press something. And nor is it called what some people say, well, it was an automatic writing that takes place. None of that nor did God dictate his word to the writers. Oftentimes, Peter and Paul, they dictated to somebody else who, who wrote it down. And the style of each biblical author comes through in his writings. You can read it in the Greek and, and the, the languages, and you can see that Peter and Paul write completely differently. And, and God uses each one of their own experiences to communicate word for word what he once, once said. Each author brings to the text his own life experiences, his personality, but God preserved each author from teaching error. For the author was being used by the Spirit to communicate God's own words. That's why the prophets of the Old Testament could preface their oracles with, Thus says the Lord God. By way of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit spoke through Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Habakkuk, Nahum, Moses, Peter, Paul, Mark, Matthew, and Luke without annihilating their humanity. Isaiah was not simply a secretary. He was the instrument who received the revelation of God and was carried along by God, carried along by the breath of God. This is the point that Peter is making here that none of the word of God came solely by human power, didn't come at all by the will of men. But, he is saying, if you reject the writings of any of these human beings, you are rejecting God himself. That is Peter's estimate of the authority of the written word of God that we are given that we need to heed today. Gordon R. Lewis, the professor of systematic theology, at Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary in Denver, summed it up this way. He says the human writers were not autonomous, but lived and moved and had their being in the all-wise Lord of all. 
created with a capacity for self-transcendence in the image of God, they could receive changeless truths by revelation. Providentially prepared by God in their unique personalities, they also had characteristics common to all other human beings at all times and cultures. Their teaching originated, however, not with their own wills, but God's, and came to them through a variety of means. In all the human writing process, they were supernaturally overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Not in a way analogous to mechanical or unworthy human relationships, but as one loving person effectually influences another. What stands written, therefore, in human language is not merely human, but also divine. What the human sentences teach, God teaches. And this is to what the early church devoted itself to in the apostles' teaching. In other words, they were a learning, they were a studying church. There's a lot of things that Luke, the writer of the, the book of Acts, by way of the Holy Spirit, could initially said about them. The early church was a joyful church, it was an expanding church, it was a growing church, it was a vibrant church, it was a praying church. But nevertheless, the first thing that Luke says about them refers to their teaching. They devoted themselves first to teaching. They devoted themselves first to God's word. They weren't reveling in their own experiences. They were reveling in the word of God. This is always the mark of a spirit-filled, spirit-led church. A spirit-filled, spirit-led church always studies the apostolic teaching. If we are a church as a spirit-filled and spirit-led church, we will be drawn to God's word. And we are. If you are a Christian and you are spirit-filled and spirit-led, you're going to be drawn to this book. But that's where we're going to have to leave it till next time. Because we've looked at inspiration, next time we'll start looking at what does it mean to be illumined. Illumined. Shall we pray? Our Father, even as we hear the hail and the wind right now, Lord, we, we pray for your protection. Anytime there's a hailstorm, it can be difficult for the crops. It can be hard on, on automobiles and vehicles that are outside, Lord. And so we just uh, pray for that, for that protection. But Father, it's, to me, it's always interesting how when you're talking about the wind and the Holy Spirit and noises and those kind of things, you just gave us something of an object lesson this morning, Lord, of how, how powerful those things can be. And we recognize the power of your Holy Spirit and the power that he gives to us through his word. And for this, we do give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.